from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading, our only scripture reading, is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. And that's on the New Testament, page 178 uh, in your pew Bibles. Listen now for the word of God for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but it says, to your offspring, that is, to one person, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it, is no, it no longer comes from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring who would come to the promise had been made, and it was ordained through angels and by a mediator. Now, a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given so that it could make alive, the righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come, and we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've been hanging around with First Presbyterian Church this summer, you know that we have been working our way slowly and intentionally through the book of Galatians. Galatians is one of Paul's first letters, and it is certainly one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. It's a powerful, though sometimes combative, word in the period of the Reformation, it became a central resource for outlining the tenets of sola gratia, by grace alone, and sola fide, by faith alone. Galatians is an important writing for the history of the early church. It's important for Reformed theology, and yes, perhaps it is even important for us here at the corner of 16th and Peachtree. Let me start by a word, a caveat, that I often tell my students when I teach at the seminary level. Reading Paul is a lot like trying to unravel a big tangled knot. As soon as you get one thing figured out, one knot undone, you find yourself dealing with at least another half dozen. 
So if at the end of the reading from chapter 3 that we just heard Kate read, or even at the end of this sermon, if your head hurts a little bit, goes with the territory, and it will be okay. As a reminder, Paul tells us that he helped start these churches in Galatia that were comprised mostly of non-Jewish believers. As he tells the story, these Galatian believers received the Holy Spirit and joined or formed some type of religious community. Paul gives us very little details about the nature of this Holy Spirit reception, but other details in the text suggest that it was a powerful, religious, and identity-forming experience. At the very least, it meant their adoption as God's children and their membership within God's people. But as was Paul's custom, he eventually left the Christians in Galatia and went off to somewhere else in the ancient Mediterranean world to start another community. In his absence, though, rival teachers made their way into the community. And these teachers began insisting that, among other things, it was necessary for males to practice circumcision and for others to follow certain practices that marked Jewish ethnic and religious identities. To some form or fashion, these rival teachers wanted Christians to follow or observe the Jewish law. Scholars disagree about the exact motivations of these rival teachers or about those who were persuaded by them. But if you've read even a little bit of Galatians, you know that Paul clearly viewed this as a problem, a big problem. And he pulls out just about every rhetorical and theological and interpretive stop to counteract the perspectives of these rival teachers. In chapter 3, Paul turns his attention to the figure of Abraham, who is something of the linchpin in his whole argument in Galatians. For Paul, Abraham is the prototype both of how God sets people right with God's self and of how people should respond to God. Chapter 3 amounts to Paul's sustained and creative engagement with Genesis 12 through 20, the story where we learn of of God's calling of Abraham and God's promise to Abraham and God's uh, response to Abraham's own faithful response. I think Paul's basic point is somewhat clear or uh, can be stated as thus. God's promise to Abraham and God's declaring that Abraham is righteous all happened before the giving of the law of Moses. Years, decades, generations before Mount Sinai or or Moses or the prescriptions of the law, Abraham was able to encounter God without the help of the law or its requirements. Abraham is central for Paul because Abraham's response to God and God's response to Abraham prove that this is the way, this is the original, the essential, the earliest way that God has gone about setting people in right relationship with God. 
The law, then, is secondary, both chronologically and theologically. In the story of Abraham, circumcision is mentioned, it's it's given, it's prescribed in this story, but the sequence of events matter to Paul. It is first that God declares that Abraham is righteous, then he gives the act of circumcision as a sign of that covenant and of the promise to Abraham's offspring. Circumcision, then, is a sign of God's restoring right relationship with Abraham. It is not the mechanism of restoring that relationship. So all of this, this call and the promise and the response and the declaration of righteousness, all of this happened hundreds of years before the law. And as Paul says in our passage today, the law does not annul or modify or add to what has originally been promised by God and the covenant that God made with Abraham some 430 years earlier. So why give the law in the first place? That seems to be Paul's basic question in Galatians 3.19, a a verse we just heard. And Paul will spend the next chapter or two sort of figuring out how to answer that question and why he would go about answering that question. I think we can understand perhaps why Paul would ask this question or even why some of Paul's first hearers would ask this question. After all, Paul does not say the most flattering things about the law in the book of Galatians. He has said uh, earlier that the law brings a curse on both those who observe it and those who don't. He insists that no one can be made right with God through the observance of the law. The law, he says, does not originate with faith and it does not determine Abraham's inheritance, nor does it relate in any way to God's promise to Abraham. So what's the point? Why then the law? I think we might start by pointing out what Paul does not say. Paul does not say that the law is worthless. He does not say that the law is wicked or or bad or evil. He certainly does not say that the law was given by a rival or different God. While Paul is perhaps a little less enthusiastic about the law in Galatians than he is in another writing like Romans, he's not entirely dismissive of the law. The law, you see, has real but limited power. It can reveal the right way to live, but it can't make living that way any more likely or possible. The law can render judgment and point out wrongdoing, but it can't make that good life any more attractive. The law can do a lot of things, but it can't bring new life, as Paul says in verse 21. Why then the law? We see the clearest answer to this question in verses 23 and 24. First, Paul says that we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. The law imprisoned and guarded humanity for a time. 
Admittedly, this isn't the most positive language for the law either. While the NRSV translation, the one we just heard Kate read, puts an equal emphasis on the two words, the word imprisoned and the word guarded, the Greek construction actually emphasizes the word guarded. That's the primary word in Greek. And this isn't an entirely negative word. The same Greek word is used for the military protection of a city in 2 Corinthians 11. And its same word describes God's guarding or, or protecting the hearts of Christians in Philippians 4. So when Paul says that the, the law had this protecting or, or guarding purpose of the law, it might be a positive thing. In fact, it sort of aligns with what was a, a fairly typical understanding of the Jewish law in antiquity. It guarded their distinctive identities and practices. The, the law was like a fence around the people of God. It was a hedge around them. It, it buffered them from the negative influences of their neighbors. The law, Paul says in the second place, also confined or imprisoned humanity. The law somehow limited human freedom or human agency. Once again, this sounds pretty negative at first glance. But let me tell you, after a week of navigating uh, half of my family having COVID, I understand the language in a bit of a more positive light. Maybe instead of imprisoned, we think about the law as a sort of temporary quarantine for humanity. Like COVID quarantine, the law's quarantine limits the damage or the impact of the disease of human sin. Yes, there's a limit to human freedom, a limit to human agency, but it's motivated more by care than by punishment. Why the law? It guards humanity until the coming of faith, and it confines or quarantines humanity until the time. In verse, 30, in verse 24, Paul highlights a third function of the law, he says the law is a disciplinarian for humanity. Come on, Paul, that's not a very positive-sounding word either. It makes me think of the stereotypical uh, ruler-bearing nun ready to pounce on anyone who speaks out of turn or, or who even smiles at the wrong moment. The disciplinarian sounds more like a nickname for a boxer or an MMA fighter or, or maybe one of Sony Corleone's squeeze men. It's not an entirely positive name. All of these images evoke uh, violence and control and coercion. While some interpreters of Galatians may advocate for this sort of interpretation, the image of, of the law is basically a seven-foot-tall prison guard, I don't think it's quite right. In the ancient world, the word disciplinarian referred to a house slave who accompanied children in their development. Disciplinarians might be responsible for teaching their master's children their letters or how to read or how to write. They might accompany children as they walked around the city or ran errands. Essentially, disciplinarians kept their kids from getting their lunch money stolen by the bully and they made sure that they learned their manners. 
So what's the point of all this? The law has accompanied humanity, perhaps even protected and nurtured humanity for a certain period of its history. Paul is clear in Galatians, the law played a certain and important role in the history of humanity and of God's dealing with it. But he is equally clear. That time has come to an end because God raised Jesus from the dead. It's important to note that Paul wasn't just sitting around one day contemplating the heavens and the, and the clouds, thinking about the law, weighing its merits when he concluded that the law was necessary but limited. Nor was Paul's reflection on the, the law a result of his, his crippling guilty conscience or his pining away about he could, how he could possibly please God. As Paul will say elsewhere in his letters, his view of the law changed because of an event, not because of some debating of legal theory or some personal search for meaning. It changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. For Paul, the death and the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. The story of Jesus meant that the fullness of time had come, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4. 4. The old era had come to an end. A new era had begun. It's hard to overstate the significance of this thinking for Paul and his words about the law. At the most basic level, the reason the law has lost its significance, the reason the law had an important but temporary role, is that it belonged to an old age. It belongs to a pre-resurrection reality, and it has lost its significance for post-resurrection life, what Paul will call new creation. Why then the law? It was meant to hem humanity in until the coming of faith, until the coming of Jesus, until God's raising Jesus from the dead and inaugurating the new age. The law had an important, though limited and temporary role, and it has fulfilled its function, according to Paul. It has gotten humanity, perhaps a little wily and prone to run off and get into trouble with the neighborhood bully, to its destination. The law has gotten humanity to the experience of new life. New life and new creation make all the difference. The empty grave means a new epoch has begun. The old age has passed. Behold, a new age has begun. God's recreating purposes have been let loose. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all humanity. Jews and Gentiles alike. This week, as I was wrestling with this text from Galatians, I kept thinking about the experience of my son learning to ride a bike. I'm sure many of you can remember either riding, learning to ride a bike yourselves or teaching somebody else who was important in your life how to ride a bike. Like many children, Micah rode the bike with training wheels. These training wheels in his early days uh, certainly guarded him. They protected him from a sure fall when his momentum went too far to the left or to the right. 
The training wheels kept him upright as he learned to balance and pump the pedals and and steer. But for all their benefits, these training wheels also came to confine Micah. He couldn't ride the bike on all the surfaces that those other big kids could ride on. And as he got more confident, the, the, the aluminum wheels dragged and, and made noise, limiting his speed and agility, if nothing to say his coolness factor. I don't remember all of the details, and I'm sure to misremember some of them. But if I recall correctly, Micah made the transition from biking with training wheels to two-wheel bike riding when we were on a family camping trip in Idaho. His grandmother had found a bike at a second-hand store and brought it to the campsite that we shared. Just one problem with this second-hand bike. No training wheels. For the first day or so, the bike sat untouched, leaning against my in-law's camper. Eventually, whether through through prodding or, or coddling or encouragement, Micah gave it a try. He started slowly, and, and of course, he had plenty of soft tumbles on the grass next to the sidewalk. It was anything but a perfect transition. He got frustrated. There may have been some tears along the way. At first, I, I would help Micah get started. I would, I would grab the seat, the back of the seat, and I would walk slowly, holding it upright as, as he started to pedal. And as his balance shifted and his confidence grew, I would, I would let go, give it a little shove, and, and he would pump the pedals just a few more times before inevitably falling to the ground. But as we re- rehearsed this, as we redid this again and again, we eventually worked out a little chant. Pedal, pedal, keep your balance. Pedal, pedal, keep your balance. Pedal, pedal, keep your balance. And eventually, like most kids, he got the hang of it. He started pedaling further and further, eventually making turns and doing loops. But for days or weeks after getting comfortable, I could still hear him saying our little chant, pedal, pedal, keep your balance. Pedal, pedal, keep your balance. Maybe you can see where I'm going with all of this. For Paul, the law is like training wheels for a new bike rider. It got humanity to a certain point, but with the resurrection of Jesus, the training wheels have come off. Humanity is set free. But as Paul makes clear later in Galatians, we humans have a propensity for falling back into subjection. To return to my analogy, we humans prefer the safety of training wheels to the freedom and risk of living without them. We prefer rigid certainty to curiosity and wonder. We default to putting people into boxes or simple categories rather than granting them complexity and depth. We resort to tribalism and express contempt for those who are different socially, politically, or theologically. So what are your spiritual training wheels? If following the living God is wild and free, 
and risky? What do you turn to that is safer or more predictable? Maybe it's, it's your well-thought-out and established theological beliefs. Maybe it's your well-reasoned political affiliation or, or voting history. Maybe it is your picture-perfect family portrait. Or maybe it's just busyness, the fact that you can't ever slow down that keeps you from engaging the living God. Could be a financially secure but soul-crushing job or maybe even spiritual practices that no longer fit who you are or where you are in life. What buffers you from the risky business of engaging the living God? Pedal, pedal, keep your balance. This could be the mantra of our faith together in the living God. Our text invites us to take off our spiritual training wheels. It beckons us to follow boldly after the God who ever and always goes before us and beyond our expectations. It stirs us to new life and resurrection. May we have the courage and the energy and the imagination to follow our risen Lord into God's promised future. Amen.